He was born and raised in New York City, became an engineer, worked on the space program before alcoholism ruined his life. Yet since then, he's made a remarkable recovery and has dedicated his life to the recovery of others. He's Frank Sanchez. I'm John Bradshaw, and this is Our Conversation. Frank, thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, John. I really appreciate you having me. We've got a great story to share, very encouraging. There are some ups and downs, some real downs, which resulted in real ups. But let's go back to the beginning. You're from New York City. Where and how and so forth? Well, uh, I was raised, John, in the metropolitan area of New York, uh, which is Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, and uh, further out in Long Island. That's where I spent my youth. Okay. What was your youth like? What was your childhood like? Well, I come from a from an area which I I, I, find, I fondly uh, call it uh, an area of dysfunction, and my family was uh, a prime example of dysfunction. How so? So we had uh, quite a few people in the family. One side of the family was, and these are all folks that were uh, first generation in the country. My mother's side of the family were all. Russians and Polish. My father's side of the family were all Spaniards from Spain. And so when they got together, they had different cultures and had different thoughts on how to do things. But one thing they had in common was a work ethic, and that work ethic uh, brought itself all the way through to every part of life. I'm going to guess you mentioned Spain and you mentioned Poland I'm going to guess there was a pretty strong religious religious ethic in your family as well. Well, there was a, a religious connotation, but they were not practicing Catholics, although they were Catholic. Yeah, okay. They were not practicing Catholics. So you weren't raised as a kid with a strong religious component in your life? Well, no, a strong Christian component in your well, life. Well, I was raised with, uh, with, with Catholicism, and what happened— uh, was I went to church, but pretty much I was the only, myself, my two sisters went to church. The parents didn't go to church. And when I went to church, I found that there was a, a harshness at the church. Hmm. There was always God punishing you for one thing or another. How does that, how does that appeal to a, to a young boy? It didn't appeal to me at all. So no. by the age of 12, I left the church. And your parents were okay with that? They didn't know I did. Okay. So it was, you know, back in those days, you would be able to just walk from your home to the church, might be a f- few blocks away or whatever. Sure. But it, most most folks let their kids do whatever they need to do. It wasn't like today. My grandchildren, they would be never be let out to go to church on their own, yeah. you know, four, five, six blocks away. Let alone wandering through New York City <laughs> on a Sunday right. morning. It's a little might different. Might have counted anything. Right. So you know— I, I know you ended up being an engineer working on the space program, but, but before we get to that, sounds like you did pretty good in school. Did school come easy to you as a kid? Uh, well, it wasn't too bad. I yeah. was able to uh, do, do well in school. Uh, did I, you... didn't, I didn't do well in the area of, uh, of like the church. I was always getting in trouble. So when I get in trouble in the church, then there were punishments for that. I had to go to confession. There were... There were penalties for that, you know, penance and whatnot. So that's 
That's the area that I didn't like. Going to school was okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I'm, I'm jumping from one place to the right. other here, but, but that punishment and, and penance and so forth for spiritual infractions of some kind, what that do to your view of God? Well, that was that was the problem that I had, and I that I've realized now. Everything that I talk about is in hindsight. Mm. So what I've realized is that my perception of God was He was just punishing and mean, and it was uh, somebody I didn't want to be around. And so I did whatever I needed to do in order to not be in contact with Him. Mm. Okay. I I also found that to be I had. Uh, Encounters with a lot of Jewish people in upstate New York. My grandfather owned a farm, small farm, in the Catskill Mountains. Mm. And uh, I would go up there for the summers. And they rented rooms out there to people that they knew from Poland, Russia, a lot of Jewish people that were in the Holocaust. Mm. And so when I went there as a young boy, you know, 10, 9, up to 11 or so, they would have the Sabbath would, would come in on a Friday night and everybody would start talking about this cruel God. That, you know, they went to the gas chambers. They talked about situations where children were shot, husbands were shot. You heard these conversations? Oh, these conversations went on every Sabbath, every Friday night. Wow. And I started to just wonder what kind of, what kind of people that they... They would put up with a God like that. Now, are you saying that they related to God as cruel or that no, was the they impression didn't. you took? No, they did not. Okay, okay. That was amazing to me. Yeah. They did not. They were very, very uh, religious. So you had to wrestle with this idea of people of faith suffering. Yeah, yeah. Why, that had to be an experience. I mean, yeah. these days there are very few Holocaust survivors left, but you were there in the midst of a gaggle of them. Uh, at this time, during that time would be, like the late 40s, early 50s. And so these experiences that the people would talk about fresh. was fresh in their mind. Yeah, fresh. And I just got the impression that God, on top of what I had seen at the Catholic Church, was somebody I didn't really want to be involved with. Yeah, so he was hard on the Jews and hard on the Catholics. Hard on everybody, it seemed. Yeah, yeah, I see. You you ended up pursuing engineering, got a science degree, an engineering degree. What, right. what led you there? Were you always going to do something like that, or did you stumble into it? How did you well, find my your grandfather? Your my grandfather, uh, on, the, on the Russian side, he was a, a machinist, and he always uh, had aspirations for me, thinking that I should go into engineering or at least you know, be some kind of a mechanical something, you know, machinist or do something. And uh, he, he pushed me in that direction, and I, and I followed it. I, I didn't follow it necessarily happy all the way, but I did. And it, it actually turned out to be a pretty good thing to do. How did you end up working in the space program? And, and where did you work in the space program? Yeah, well, when I, when I graduated from college, I, I went to New York Institute of Technology in, in Manhattan. And when I graduated, I was about to graduate. Uh, they interviewed people for jobs, you know, job fairs and Boeing uh, was there and I interviewed with them and they hired me. Mm. And so I went to Florida, Cape Canaveral is where I worked and I worked on the Apollo program down there for about three years and we went to the moon in 1969. That had to have been immensely exciting. You were still a young man. Very exciting. 
I often refer to it as Boomtown. Yeah. The Cocoa Beach, Cape Canaveral. Sometimes some folks will remember seeing Walter Cronkite in the in the restaurants there interviewing astronauts. Well, I was sitting in those restaurants when he was doing that. No kidding. And everybody was drinking and drinking heavy. Hopefully so not the it wasn't good. It wasn't good for me. No. In okay. the long run. So let's let's talk about that because you, today you work in recovery, right? Helping people get over addiction, helping them get through that very difficult time. But before, of course, you slid into addiction, and alcohol was your poison of choice. That's right. How did that come to be? Well. As we talked about in the early part of my life in that dysfunctional family, there were a number of alcoholics in that family. Mm-hmm. The uh, major influence on me concerning that was my mom. And she was a uh, pretty, uh, pretty out-of-control alcoholic. And she died when she was around 83 years old. And uh, she was drinking up until maybe a couple of months before she died. Have mercy. Have mercy. How right. in the world? You know, alcoholism takes people out much younger and yet right. seem to preserve her somehow. Yeah. What, what was it like then being in the home? Your mother was a was an alcoholic. What did that do to her and how did that impact you and your siblings? Well, it wound up that we all wanted to get away. Well, she wasn't a happy drunk. Not a happy drunk. So we all wanted to get away, my sisters and myself. And it was like, at the first opportunity, I'm going to get out of there, and I'm never going to be like that. Oh, interesting. Never interesting. going to be like that. Interesting, yeah. Is the, the one thing that most I've found with addicts have said about they're never going to be like this, and then what happens is they are like that. Uh, That's what happened to me. What was your, your parents' relationship like, being as your mother was alcoholic? Was, it, was there fireworks in the home, or did they manage to get by okay? Yeah, there were, there were a lot of fireworks. My father was, uh, was a codependent. So he didn't drink very much, but and he but yet he enabled my mother to drink. And so when I was younger, we, we used to have to meet with the family every Sunday, yep. either at the at the Spanish house or at the Russian house. And that that trip would either be from Long Island to Manhattan or from Long Island to Brooklyn. And when we would go there, my mother would always be lecturing on us to be good when we go there. And then on the way back, she'd be fighting with my father because she was not good, and my father and her were fighting about it. Mm. And I always thought it was because I wasn't good. Oh, that's interesting. Right. So you assumed the blame or the responsibility for that, and not an uncommon thing for kids raised in chaos to identify themselves as the source of the problem. That's a heavy load for a kid to bear. So how then... Did you go from, I mean, you're, you're a high flyer, getting people into space and working on that program, and you got a great job with a fantastic company on, on literally the most exciting project in the United States, and perhaps not a stretch to say in the world at that time. Absolutely. So you were, you were flying high. How did you descend and ultimately end up so low? How did the alcohol take Take, take well, your life. <clears throat> I left the space program and worked for General Electric in upstate New York. And I worked on programs up there which were associated with the Vietnam War at that time. So I worked on uh, aircraft uh, that were flying to Vietnam, attack aircraft. 
Then I worked in a nuclear submarine program where we made, and also aircraft carriers. So I worked in those two programs for a number of years during the war. And, and it, we, we supported the war in Vietnam. And then uh, after a while, it just got to be that it was too restrictive to work in that, in that field. Oh, yeah? Because I couldn't drink. So you were drinking by now? Oh, I was drinking, drinking heavy. Uh, well, I've been drinking since I was 12 years old. Okay, so it was, you, you grew up in, this, in a culture you drank and, okay. So when I, when I uh, was in, in uh, General Electric working in that program and in, in those programs, it just got to be that it inhibited my drinking. So I decided I'll leave engineering and go and develop a campground on that property that I talked about where I had heard those Jews talking about the Holocaust. Oh, yeah. So I bought that property for my grandfather. So let me get this straight. You're working in essentially the defense industry, high-end. I mean, to me, it sounds very high-end. You chose to give it up so you could do something that enabled you to drink more. Absolutely. Let me get this straight. You didn't walk away because you were in trouble for your drinking. So, So... it's not that an opportunity closed, so you had to go. You chose to step out of that because if I did this, I can drink more. Absolutely. That's a whale of a place to be, isn't it? It is. But, you know, the campground industry at the time was not some place where you were going to go and go broke. Right. So it seemed like a good thing to do. Sure, sure. It was a good business opportunity. And, and, it was a, and I could manipulate things so that I could reinforce my drinking. Yeah. See, that by this time, I've already been drinking probably 15 years or so. Uh-huh. And so that's starting to become the center of my life for everything is drinking. Even though I had a wife and by this time I had uh, three, possibly four children at that time. I can't get it together. Right so when did this dawn on you, hey, maybe I have a problem? Well, it happened all along this time because I would have various kinds of troubles. Okay. Even as early as when I worked at the Cape, I was uh, would get drunk, take my car and drive, and the police would follow you, and then they'd take you down to the station, give you a breathalyzer test, take you to the station, let you sleep it off. So, you know, nobody's going to lock up this nice young engineer working on a space program right. and ruin his future, right? What if they had... What if they locked you up and ruined your future? It would Do be you, better. You think it might have, I mean, who knows, right? But you think that might have been the jolt that you perhaps needed? Would it have got your attention? It would get your attention. Whether it would be the final one, I don't know. Right, right. Because I think for many people, their attention has got on numerous occasions. So, so it had occurred to you along the way that this drinking maybe was a bit of a problem. Absolutely. When did it occur to your wife? That this was a problem. She had little well, kids and it, and it so occurred forth. to her at the campground. Yeah. And uh, it became where it became tough on her to be able to keep keep that relationship going with someone who's so abusive. Uh, because I became violent and abusive under the influence of alcohol. Yeah. And so it just got worse. The the, the whole thing of addiction, you never go on an uphill direction. You're always going on a downhill direction. Mm. And so I was always on a downhill spiral. And eventually, uh, 
we had enough trouble at that campground that uh, the violence got pretty bad, and she called the police. When she called the police, I somehow wound up with a gun in my hand. The police came up. It's not a good situation. No. Luckily, or not luckily, but through the grace of God, the patrolman that came up and saw me, I knew him, and he knew me. Mm. And he came up and snatched the gun from me, told me to stop what I'm doing, which I did. That jolted me. That 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 could have turned out very differently. But very it didn't different. stop my drinking. No. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. No. <laughs> no, because, you know, we're alcoholics and it's, it's not always about good common sense addiction. So what happened? How, how did that progress? Well, what happened was that evening uh, after after the police left, his name was Joel. When he left, I had a nervous breakdown. Hmm. I didn't know just what was going on with me. And I called my friend Rick, who I originally had started drinking with when I was a, a young boy friend of mine okay and uh, I knew that he was into the Bible and he was doing some uh, studying wanting to find out God what God was all about and uh, so I called him and about two o'clock in the morning he came up to see me at two o'clock in the morning yeah to help me that's a friend that's right and uh, he tried to explain to me what I needed to do and he took the Bible out and he opened John 15. Mm. John, in, in John 15, it talks about branches and vines. Yes. I didn't understand one word he was talking about. Is that right? I said, Rick, thanks a lot. I appreciate you coming. I'll see you. I didn't see him again for another 12 years. Have mercy. So and what I had, continued to drink. For 12 more years? 12 more years. If it was bad before... <laughs> My guess is it didn't get any better. That's right. Did it affect your professional life, your work life? Well, I was in my own business, so I had more time to drink and have a dysfunctional life. I didn't I didn't really report to anybody. So the family it got worse. And my wife finally had had enough of it and she finally filed for divorce. When she did was that devastating, crushing, humiliating, worrying, or did you just kind of roll with it? It was all of that. It was. But it didn't affect my drinking. I just continued to drink. You see, I was trying to find peace and serenity, happiness. Couldn't find it anywhere. The only time I ever found it, I was on that first drink that I took with Rick, Mm. some 15 well, by this time, a number of years before that, probably yeah. going on closer to 18 years. When I had that first alcoholic encounter with Rick, we drank liquor, actually to get drunk. I found peace, serenity. All was right with the world. Mm. I searched for that the rest of my life, my drinking life. Interesting, isn't it? Because you start to drink, and of course there's no serenity, but you've already experienced that drinking brings you peace, so you, you, it's like chasing a shadow, isn't it? It's the insanity of addiction. Yeah. You see, they have a step two in the 12-step program, and step two says, came to, came to believe that there's a power greater than myself who can restore me to sanity. So 
if somebody's going to restore me to sanity, it must mean I'm insane mm. to start with. I now can say that was what was going on. Well, God somehow managed to restore you, turned everything around, has given you a fantastic ministry, have impacted countless people. So we're going to talk about that in just a moment, and I'm glad you're here for the journey. I'm John Bradshaw with Frank Sanchez, and this is our conversation brought to you by It Is Written. You know that at It Is Written, we are serious about the study of the Word of God. And we encourage you to be serious about God's Word also. Well, I want to share with you another way that you can dig deeper into the Word of God. And here it is. Itiswritten.study Go online to itiswritten.study and you can access the It Is Written Bible Study Guides. 25 in-depth Bible studies that will walk you through the Bible. It's going to be good for you. And it's the sort of thing that you will want to tell somebody else about so that they can dig deeper into the Word of God and come to know the things of the Bible intimately. As you get into the It Is Written online Bible study guides, you'll understand the prophecies of the Bible, the plan of salvation, and more. So don't forget, itiswritten.study. Itiswritten.study. Welcome back to Conversations brought to you by It Is Written. My guest is Frank Sanchez, an engineer who worked on the space program, and alcohol simply got the better of him. Frank, a moment ago, you were, you were pretty close. It sounds to me like you're pretty close to rock bottom. Eventually, you hit rock bottom. There's one thing I know you talk about, then, that is the gift of desperation, I've never heard that phrase. Talk to me about that, but in the context of you getting to the bottom and things starting to turn around, how'd that happen? Yeah, the gift of desperation is something that uh, most folks in recovery uh, are aware of that happening in their life, that have turned around. And it's it's a very common phrase in Alcoholics Anonymous and, and in most 12-step programs, Christ-centered or not. And what it is, is really it's uh, what most people refer to as hitting bottom. Mm-hmm. I hit the bottom. How, I can't how, go any further. How, how do you hit the bottom, and how did you know that that was, in fact, the bottom? Right. And that's something that I'm not sure you can – it'll be different for each person. Mm-hmm. But for me, it was the last night that I was out drinking. I was very despondent. I was very angry very upset, my ex-wife was going off to marry somebody else. Mm. The psychology of all that was just very bad. And the violence within me just came to the forefront. And I wanted to go and do some damage somewhere. And in an inebriated state, I couldn't help but do damage if I got in a car, drive, do whatever. But I did it anyhow. And when I got to a place where I just saw that I was so out of control, I was just absolutely out of control, there was a moment of clarity where I said, boy, you are out of control. Hmm. You are really trying to go out there and do a lot of damage here. I better think of something to change this. Maybe I need to get back with that God who maybe could help me. But, you know, God is... 
somebody I don't like. Right. And he's someone that he's not going to listen. He doesn't want to listen to me. I'm going to have to come up with a really good prayer for him to listen to me. And so I was in the car totally surrounded by empty bottles and cans and weapons and all kinds of things. And I tried to write this prayer, and all I could come up with was help. Which is a pretty good prayer. That's the only prayer I could come up with, and he's still helping me today. How'd things turn around? That was your prayer. What happened? Well, immediately, immediately, actually the very next morning, a stranger to me, I don't know who gave my number to this person, a man called me and asked me if I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. And just, I said, just out of the blue? Out of the blue. And I said, I guess I am. And he said, well, if you would like, there's an AA meeting tonight at 7 o'clock down at the Presbyterian Church down there in O'Galley, Florida. If you'd like to go there, I'll meet you there. I don't even know that man's name. I said, okay, and I went down to that church. I wasn't going to go, but I said, I thought in my mind, I said, you asked for help. Yeah. And here's something right here. It sounds it like help. Yeah. If you're not going to do it, what's wrong with you? So I went. And from that day forth to today, I've never had to take a drink again. So is that man there? Was he there? He was not there. He was not there. I don't know who he was. You still don't I know? I don't know. You have no idea? I don't know. That's the... <laughs> That's, a That's an angel thing. in my life. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, that was easy then, wasn't it? You, you got hopeless, you're blind drunk, you're violent, and, and your marriage fell apart, and you're destructive, and then you weren't. No. So you went to that AA meeting. Like, what really happened? Was there withdrawal? Was there struggle? Did, did, you, did you have to did you, did you struggle to drive past a bar? I mean... I did. How, I, how was that yeah. as I, it worked out in, in your early experience? sobriety for me, I struggled for quite a long time. Yeah. And I went, but the thing that I did was I continued to go to that AA meeting yeah. twice a week. And on one night a week, I went to a speaker meeting at AA. Like, so it was three nights a week at three AA? Three nights a week, I went to AA. And then I met a whole group of people that I now started to... Uh, hang out with. Yeah. And so it was always uh, sobriety at the top of the list. And so that was what I focused on, and I continued to go to that meeting. But for four months I went to that meeting, and you know, they sit in a circle in the meeting, Yeah, and each person goes, they introduce themselves, say you're an alcoholic or whatever, and then you can share something. And I went there for four months, and all I did was when they got to me, I said, my name's Frank, I pass. So for four months, I sat there and listened to what they all had to say and tried to just put it all together in my mind. Yeah, why did you not speak? Well, because I wasn't sure I was an alcoholic. Stop everything. I mean, hold tight. You weren't sure you were an alcoholic. What could you possibly have been if you weren't <laughs> don't alcoholics live under bridges they have no money they have no car oh because you were functional you figured this isn't this isn't i'm not that i'm a functional alcoholic 
if there's some, such a term. So that's really interesting. After all you'd been to, you weren't sure you were able to refer to yourself as an alcoholic. That's the denial trail. That's the trail of denial. Were you, were you in denial? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you, you knew you were a hopeless drunk and that you had all these I problems. I knew that I, I, was, I would have problems when I drank. Does that mean you're an alcoholic? Interesting thought. Okay, so as you and, and and by the way, being an engineer, you're very analytical. That's right. You don't make snap emotion-based <laughs> decisions. You, you're weighing everything up. Let's figure you this all out. I, I should have said as soon as you said four months as an engineer, I'm surprised it didn't take you longer because, <laughs> right. you know, engineers are careful and methodical, and we Crazy. thank God they are. That's why we drive on the bridges they design. Uh, so you didn't drink again. No, I didn't drink. I went to the meetings. I find that just fascinating. I mean, wouldn't wouldn't your body screaming out for alcohol? Well, I I wanted to drink because it was a habitual problem, and it was uh, it's an addiction. An addiction is I want what I want when I want it. Yeah, and I want alcohol. I want it now. So uh, after a short period of time, though, that uh, urge to drink does start to subside, and so it's just uh, mental anguish that occurs. I've heard people say that after you get over the physical addiction of certain things, which can happen in a relatively short period of time, after that it's kind of a psychological thing. So it's not your body screaming out anymore. It's just your your mind saying, well, we do this, don't we? So let's do this some more. And I'm still looking for that peace and serenity. Yeah. I'm not finding it in the world because in the world that I was in, I was in a mess of trouble. I hadn't been paying support. So there were troubles. There were troubles there. Yep. I had been hanging out with some of the wrong people for a long time. There were troubles there. My business was in big trouble. Mm. I wasn't meeting my obligations, not only in the, the area of my children, but at home to pay for my mortgage and other things. Yeah. Car payments, insurance, you name it. And so it was. Uh, it was a devastating period of time in sobriety. And so you had would, every you had every reason, every inducement to go back to alcohol. So I would think that if I went and took a drink, it would make it better. But you know what they tell you in AA? What's that? If you take a drink, will it make it better? And you knew from experience, <laughs> it's not make it better. every drink had made it worse and That's not better. Right. So, but, but before we move on, I want to ask you this: as you progressed in sobriety, did you find these other areas of your life evening out, or was it just turmoil that you weren't able to resolve? No, things things got better. They, every day, things get better when you get into get out of the addiction. No matter what anybody ever says, oh, it's tough, it's terrible. I'm going through withdrawals. I'm having this thing. I'm having that. It's still better than what you were doing when you were drinking. Yeah, no doubt, and that's important to keep in mind. Withdrawals don't last forever. That's we're, right. We're talking really a short period of time. Alcoholism will take you to the grave, and that's that's, that's right. kind of forever. That's right. Yeah, there's there's only a few places you can go with alcoholism, active alcoholism. You can wind up in prison. Yeah. You can wind up in a mental institution. Yeah. Or you can wind up dead. Yeah. And it's a, I it's see it. that happen all the time. Right. So you progressed. You're coming out of addiction. Uh, look, your life evened out, and things really t- turned around uh, somewhere along the line. That that angry, austere God and you became friends. How'd that happen? Well, it was a process of watching so many people at the meetings that I went to 
and the various functions that I went to where I was now hanging out with folks that were all in recovery and the stories that you would hear in their lives and also in my own where I could say, wow, this is getting better. You know, I'm not having as much of a problem uh, hanging on to a couple of dollars to pay this bill off Mm. or or whatever. And uh, things started to get better. And I was in the process of working these 12 steps, which is mandatory, and that's biblical. They're all biblical principles. And so I was working these steps, and it came time for me to do my fifth step, which is where you're going to share with another individual and God about what's going on in your life after you've done a fourth step, which is an inventory of your life. And I did it with my sponsor, and it didn't work out too well. It, it just it didn't seem like anything was going to change because of that. And I was hyped up because they told me in AA, well, if you, if you do a fifth step, you're going to find out that life is going to feel so much better. And it didn't. It and didn't. I was, I was disappointed. Yeah. And so I was working down in Vero Beach, Florida one day, and I needed to make a phone call back to the office about something with the job. And I stopped at an AA club down in Vero Beach where there was a phone. This is before cell phones were around. So I went into the club and I saw a man sitting there and I said, hey, it'll be okay if I use the phone. I was going to make a call up to Melbourne. He said, oh, yeah, go ahead. I, could. I went and made the call, got done. And this fellow sitting there, he's still looking at me. He says, how are you? I said, I'm fine. I'm okay. How are you? He says, no, really, how are you? I said, well, tell you the truth, I'm not really that great. I said, I can't find anybody that I want to, that I can do my fifth step with and, uh, and, and get it really working. So he said, oh, yeah, you know what you need? You need to call Father Nugent up at St. Helens, just down the road here, a Catholic church. He's a recovering alcoholic and a monsignor. I said, well, I don't know. I don't have a real good relationship with the Catholic Church. He said, well, you might want to give him a call because he can maybe help you with that fifth step. I said, he wouldn't be able to get me in anyhow. He said, well, you just use the phone. Why don't you give him a call? Here's his number. Mm. I mean, yeah. help, God, help. <laughs> so he gives me the number. I call directory. Father Nugent answers. I tell him who I am, and I, I need to do a fifth step. you think he'd be able to help me out? He says, come in tomorrow morning, 9 o'clock. Well. Just like that? Just like that. Yeah. I went to that fifth step with Father Nugent, and I told him, I do not want to have a confession. I do not want any penance. I do not want any of the Catholic mumbo-jumbo. And he said, Frank, sit down. We're going to do a fifth step. He said, there's probably not going to be any explosions in here. There's not going to be any kind of God showing up with smoke or anything like that. We're just going to do a fifth step. I said, okay. We sat down, and that man told me about Jesus. Mm. Isn't that interesting? Given given your history with the Catholic Church, it was a Roman Catholic priest who introduced you to Christ. Amen. And he told me that Jesus knew everything about me. And he still loved me. And he went to the cross for me. I was converted that day. Is that so? Yeah. Well, how were things different? 
Tell me about that change. Well, it was just I found that peace and serenity that I had been searching for throughout the years. And it was right there. It was right there. Interesting, too, you know, because it took you to get that fifth step. So what you were looking for, didn't you went to AA and things ironed out, but what you were really looking for, you didn't find immediately, which I think is instructive. Sometimes you just got to hang in there and hang in there and hang in there, right? Patience, right. Yeah, Yeah, patience. So you'd met Jesus, you were converted, and where did your relationship with God go from there? Okay, well, in a very short period of time, you remember that fellow Rick I was talking about? Oh, sure, yeah. I'm in my house in Florida and knock at the door, and Rick's on the other side of the door. How many years had it been? Twelve years. Interesting. He says, hi, Frank, how you doing? I've been passing through here, going to a conference down in Miami, and I thought I'd stop and see how you're doing. Don't forget, the last time he saw me was when I was having a nervous breakdown. Yeah. And I didn't know anything about these branches and vines. Mm-hmm. So he came. I said, oh, come on in. And we started talking. And almost immediately, he, he, he saw a different person. He saw a different person. He said, wow, you're a lot different. He said, wait here for a minute. He went back to his car, got a Bible, came back in, and opened it to John 15. Oh, how interesting. <laughs> and read about branches and vines. And this time? And I understood every word he was saying. How about that? Did he remember that's what you discussed all these before? He did. So, And he was just a person that was Christ-centered, that wanted to help help other people. He just passed away about five years ago. Mm. And he uh, he wanted to help people and always did. You stayed close to him during those years? You stayed in contact with him? Yes. Well, from that point on there, he invited me up to his home up in Carolina, and, uh, well, we prayed together first while he was there. And uh, then he invited me up to his home in Carolina. I went up there. I saw more peace and more serenity. He was a pastor. Mm. He was a pastor in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And he introduced me to his sister, who I hadn't seen in 50 years or 40 years. And we got together at church. Went to lunch, and all we did was have Christ-centered discussions and just fell in love with Jesus at the center. And four months later, we got married. Hey, how about that? Isn't <laughs> God that. gracious? I mean, you trace those steps from having lost everything and having hit rock bottom, and God put people in your life, the man the, the man in that place who told you to give Father Nugent a call, right. the priest, Rick shows up at the door, and then Rick's sister shows up in your heart, and now things are going great. Okay, in a minute, I'm going to ask you about uh, addiction and recovery and what people can do and how they can experience what you have experienced. I am glad to be talking to Frank Sanchez. I'm John Bradshaw. This is our conversation, and it's brought to you by It Is Written. Have you ever struggled to say no to temptation? You're not alone. Everybody has at some point, but there is hope. Taking a Stand is a five-part series presented by Pastor John Bradshaw that will help you win your spiritual battles. To order your copy of Taking a Stand on DVD, call 1-888-664-5573 or download it from our web store at www.itiswritten.shop. Discover powerful ways you can live a victorious Christian life. 
Welcome back to Conversations. I'm with Frank Sanchez. Frank, we left off a moment ago with you uh, re-establishing contact with your friend Rick, who's now a pastor in the Seventh Avenue Church, and he introduces you to his sister, and things worked out pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, what I want to ask you is this. When did you know along this journey that alcohol no longer controlled you, that you were free, that, every, that you didn't have to look in the rearview mirror afraid it was following you down the road? Uh, I'm not saying... When did you decide you were not an alcoholic? That would be a different question altogether. But when did you? When could you breathe easy and say, "I don't fear that I'm going to fall back today"? Well, I lost. I lose that lose that fear on a daily basis, mm-hmm. one day at a time. Okay. So I have to kill the old man every day. Yeah. Because this is a very very uh, treacherous disease, alcoholism, or the disease of addiction. Because I know people that that have been uh, sober 20, 30 years, 40 years, they go back and drink. Mm. There are drug addicts that, that go out after 20, 30 years, they go drink. I mean, they go use drugs. That's heartbreaking. Isn't it, it is heartbreaking. But that is the, the devil has a lot of patience. Yeah. And so he can continuously work on a person, continuously work on him or her to have them think that if I do this, It'll be better. How many years has it been since you drank? 37. Could you drink again? Uh, I, I don't want to drink no, again. No, I'm not asking I, that. I, I know you don't want I, to. I think. But, I think. But, but, you know, you go out on the road, there's an accident, and the dog dies, and, right. the, and, the, and the, your checking account is closed, and things, and, and you get to your wit's end. I mean, well, I bet I've had a lot of practice on not drinking. Yeah. So, in circumstances like that, I. I, I f- do the fallback. The fallback is to Jesus. Yes. So I want to go to him before I do anything. Just like a lot of times people say, if you think you're going to take a drink, call your sponsor. Sure, sure. Call him before you drink. Yeah. See? And if he gives you, if you can give him a story that it makes more sense to drink than not drink, he'll meet you there and have a drink with you. <laughs> That's so, right. So why not try that with Jesus? Yeah, yeah, yeah. See? Okay, if there was no Jesus and your high power had been an ashtray, as one guy tried to tell me one day, or a lamppost or a big tree, uh, what then? It would be difficult because you can't, I don't believe you can overcome addiction without the second and third step. The second step says, as we mentioned earlier, that uh, I come to believe there's a power greater than myself can restore me to sanity, which goes along with 2 Timothy 1 7. Mm-hmm. And the third step, which says I'm going to turn my will and my life over to the care of God. Mm. So every decision that I'm making is God making it for me. And uh, the scripture that I like to look for, look to for that, is when Jesus is in Gethsemane and he's turning his will yes. over to the Father. That's right. And he's sweating blood over that. Yeah. And that's, in fact, what a lot of people miss. That's the essence of Christianity. Right. That's why so many people flame out as Christians, because they never, ever come to the place of actually yielding their will to God and saying, not my will, but your will be done. Right. So important for you, but the same principle is important to everyone, everywhere. Absolutely. So for you, it was alcoholism, but someone else is listening right now or watching right now, and for them, it's pornography or it's gambling or it's drugs very different addictions, particularly gambling and pornography, 
uh, food we could throw in there is another addiction. But you've learned a set of principles for combating alcohol. Do those principles apply generally to other addictions? Well, I, I believe that those principles work for any addiction, any separation from God, in order to restore that relationship, mm. which is needed in order to overcome. So the overcoming of any particular item, whether you want to call it addiction to a particular uh, substance, yeah. person, place, thing, it's all in the, in the, in the self-will. Mm. I want what I want when I want it, and I want it now. This program teaches us that I can't, he can, and I'm going to let him. It's completely opposite. Yeah. And that's what you need to overcome not just alcohol, drugs, women, gambling, or any other sin problem you have in your life. Those biblical principles of recovery are not unique for, for alcoholism. But God put them in that order and in the way that they are and in the language that's been written specifically for, for addicts because they're so self-willed that this adds humil- puts humility into your life. Tell me about some success stories you've seen. You've, you, you've shared your own story. Phenomenal, dramatic, miraculous it is but, more but 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 you know, there's there's that person who's thinking, yeah, it's good for him. Didn't happen for me, or couldn't happen for me. So let's talk about a third person that that you saw it happen for. Paint in broad strokes and and encourage us by sharing with me <laughs> um, the story of someone who went from hopelessness to hope. Well, everybody who's in a recovery program who has attained sobriety one day at a time is a miracle. Yes, everybody. Because you so you 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 just your self will has run you to the ground, and when that changes, your life changes. Now there are specific people that I know in my life that 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 had changed. We could take Rick as an example. Okay. Because Rick and I drank in our early days. We drank for years, from the age of twelve until probably mid-20s, minimum mid-20s, early 30s. And we drank, and he did drugs as well. And yet, he recovered by using the biblical principles shown to him through the Bible and through Jesus and through the people that he was associated with. And he he was an example for me. Yeah, and he went on to become a minister of the gospel. And and he, right. And an author, if I'm not correct. And an author, yes. Yeah, so that that's a miraculous turnaround. Yes. Of course, many people think they've just got no hope. You would say that everybody's got hope. There's hope through Jesus for everybody. Yeah. He went to the cross not for me only. He went for all of us. That's right. I think it says that in the Bible. It says all. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I, I think it says something very much like that. Of course it does. <laughs> so someone now is wondering, okay, what do I do? Do they pick up the phone? Do they show up someplace Someone who is struggling with addiction, whatever it is, and you've, I think, very insightfully said these principles don't just work. God doesn't just work for these big-ticket addictions, but whatever sin problem a person has. Where should someone start, Frank, if they're looking for help now? Well, today there's, there is a lot of uh, 
help available. So if you're a church member going to church, you can start within the church. You can find uh, Christ-centered recovery programs within within the church, the church in general. Yep. So you can find Celebrate Recovery, which is a rather large program throughout the United States. Sure. You can find Adventist Recovery Ministries, which is in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. You can find other specific 12-step Christ-centered programs in churches that— uh, that they've developed on their own. Like I'm involved with a, with a group in a Church of God it's called Freed, F-R-E-E-D. Oh, you wouldn't, wouldn't hear that on a national level, but in that church they have that. Yeah. And so it's the same principles that are being used. So people in the church need to be made aware of that, that it's available. So if you're in a church, you might ask your pastor, might ask the priest, maybe ask the... Uh, Anybody who's in charge, whatever uh, religion you are. Yeah, but there's some guy who's struggling with porn and doesn't want to tell anyone. There's some woman who's struggling with alcohol, and, and remarkably, there are alcoholics who hide it very well. They do. Encourage that person. How do you assure that person that it's okay or maybe absolutely necessary that they get over the, How does a person get over that fear yeah. of outing themselves? Well, that's right, and that's what we— uh, we in 12-step Christ-centered programs try to provide the assurance that when you go to one of these programs, anonymity is maintained, there's no gossip, there's no looking down on people, there's just encouragement. And so you should feel free to do that. Now, you may not feel that you have confidence in your own place of worship, because you think the people are going to see this and see that, going to think badly of you? Yeah. Fine. Go to the church down the block and ask the pastor there. Be more than happy to help you if there's a group there. If there isn't a group there, he might be able to send you to another place. What we've done here in uh, Georgia Cumberland Conference is put together booklets so that you can take a, a person in a church that has this booklet and somebody that's in charge of the booklet somebody asks for help, they just go to the booklet and they find meetings to go to, people to call, how to get out of it. You got a food addiction that's in there. You got a drug addiction that's in there. You got an alcohol addiction that's in there. Pornography that's in there. But you have to make the move. Yeah. We have to overcome this inertia that the devil has put on us that. We should not follow James 5.16 and share our burdens so you can be healed? It's bad enough, isn't it, that someone's suffering with an addiction for then be crippled by fear or or some such thing, peculiarity, fear of peculiarity. or I mean, having one is bad enough. You compound it by letting fear get in the way of getting some kind of recovery. I'm not good enough. Yeah. I'm going to this church, but I'm not good enough. Mm. Well, that's what happened to me in the Catholic Church as a youngster. When I would have penance, that I would have to kneel in the aisle of a of a, uh, a of a, a mass on Sunday morning as my penance, and so the whole church could come and walk over me that I'm kneeling down there with another guy, maybe because of this. Well, get up and leave, run away, yeah. and not come back again. Yeah, that's that's right. what we don't want to have in our churches. We want the people to know that this is a loving, caring program 
Jesus is in charge. It's like that, you know, in AA. When you walk in there, they just say, come back. Yeah. Keep coming back. Yeah. They don't chase you away. What does recovery look like for you today? Well, it looks good. Yeah? <laughs> it looks good. What are you doing? Well, I, I am involved with uh, Adventist Recovery Ministries, which is a program that we started, uh, that was started in 1986. It was called Regeneration, and it was started by a pastor. His name was Hal Gates. I, through a series of miracles, was brought out to Seattle to meet with Hal in my early sobriety. And we got together, and we were able to start doing work together. I came back to the East Coast, and I still continue to do work in that field in our church. And uh, I'm involved with Southern Union and the health health department there, North American Division, and locally with churches. And so I do awareness seminars to make people aware in the church that there is help available. Mm-hmm. And so I do that on Sabbaths uh, where I go to a church and tell my story, uh, tell that it's Jesus' story and that he's available to help you. And then I do a seminar on the 12 Steps and uh, hopefully they start a group so they can help each other. Are you still attending meetings? I attend uh, two two meetings a week that are discussion meetings and one speaker meeting. Why do you, why? Why do you go? I go because I want to share the love of Jesus. You've been, you've been sober how long? 37 years. 37 years later, you're still giving a couple of hours a night. Yeah, well, yeah. Three times. Oh, the time right. you get in your car and the time yeah. you pull back in the right. driveway. Hour meeting. Yeah. yeah, and the time getting there and back. So you hour and a half, couple of hours, three nights a week. Right. You don't have to. No. You just do it. But see, I can go there and then there's always a discussion of higher powers. Yeah. Always a discussion of higher powers. Is that so? And my higher powers got out of the Bible. I haven't been thrown out of AA yet. Yeah. <laughs> it's been quite a journey, hasn't it? Amen. When you look back over those inebriated years, what emotion stirs within you? Sadness. Yeah? I was sad that my children had to see a father like that, to have yeah. a, a family that was broken. Uh, sad to not have a relationship with the God that I understand today, that loving God who did everything for me and continues to. And I missed all that time. You know, I drank for 30 years. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of a lot of time that could have been spent in a much better way. I wonder if there's anyone who can look back and not say something similar. Wasted time. Maybe not in such a dramatic way or so much time, but I think that's something we all carry with us. Yeah. So you look back, you feel sadness. Look back with me, not quite so far back. Look back to that time of sobriety and conversion. When you think back there, what wells up inside you? Happiness. Yeah. Happiness. And from there, I went and worked in a rehab center almost immediately. I, a sponsor that I had set me up in a he, – he was a counselor, and he set me up in a place to work in a rehab center, worked there for a couple of years. Fantastic. And, you know, as a, as a, a counselor's aide. And I tried to 
to be in that field, but I, my financial situation was so far out of control. They don't pay alcoholic counselors a lot of money. Too bad. And so it is too bad. Yeah. But it's a fact. And so I wasn't able to do it for a living. Now look forward. How, whatever you see looking forward. When you look forward, what emotions stir within you? Gratitude. Gratitude to the Lord that's given me the life that I have, with the wife that I have, with the, with the seven children that we have, and nine grandchildren that we have. Pretty much serene. Beautiful. No dysfunction on our part, on, and, and they, these relationships. Yeah. That doesn't mean they don't have you know, their own dysfunctions, but we don't have any dysfunctions. Yeah. So praise God for that. A few decades ago, that must have just seemed impossible. When you looked forward in your drunkenness, as far as you were able, and you looked forward, what did you see? What stirred within you then? Hopelessness. While I was drinking, hopeless. Not now. Not now, no. Hey, <laughs> Christ is the answer. Yes, he is. Hey, thank you for what you're doing. And for taking this time. This has been a real joy. I just wish we had more time. And I want to thank you on behalf of or on behalf of the countless thousands of people that you are ministering to and blessing and encouraging and pointing to Jesus. When we all get to heaven, there's going to be a great many reunions. There'll be stories to tell. And I'm sure a lot of people will say, thank you, Frank, for pointing me to Jesus. Well, thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hey, it's been wonderful, and thank you for joining us. What a great deal of fun I've had. He is Frank Sanchez. I am John Bradshaw. This has been Our Conversation, brought to you by It Is Written. It Is Written.